Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and I'm here in WGBH's Brighton studios, gazing out at Market Street with my colleague Peter Kadzis. <laughs> Peter, greetings. Greetings and salutations. In a few minutes, we're going to be talking with our colleague Laura Colarusso about her big news story on women in politics in Massachusetts. But first, Peter, I got to get your take on the Mueller report and the fallout it has been generating. I'm guessing that 100% of our listeners know that President Trump is casting Mueller's findings as complete and total vindication, which isn't technically true since Mueller punted on the question of obstruction of justice. For their part, Democrats are calling for the release of the full report, not just Attorney General William Barr's summary. Elizabeth Warren says it's critically important that the report be made public. The American taxpayer paid for it and they ought to get to see it. Seth Moulton says if the president is as innocent as he seems, then he shouldn't be afraid to release the report. So where do you see this going? Well, first of all, Adam, I ask myself, what will MSNBC do? I mean, they were the Russiagate network. I mean, I suppose maybe they can switch the cooking shows now, but they're really up a creek. Look, this is a defining moment, not just in politics, but history will see it as a defining moment in the American polity. I got to say, I, I, I think we have to slice the salami very, very thin, at least until we read the Mueller report. I mean, I don't see how we can comment fully or intelligently until that report is released. According to Attorney General Barr's summary, the special prosecutor said conspiracy and obstruction of justice are distinct entities. The New York Times, in a way, summarized it all in 18 words. Their front page on Monday, March 25th, read, Mueller finds no Trump-Russia conspiracy. President sees exoneration, but Barr says inquiry did not settle obstruction issue. That's a good summary. All the gas aside, that's all we know as we record Monday night. So how hard should the Democrats go when it comes to, and by the way, we may be dating ourselves here, you know, maybe the, the full report's going to be released by the time this podcast is posted. I'm guessing not, I could be wrong, but how hard do the Democrats push to get whatever details we are not privy to? And there's a whole bunch of them, obviously. I mean, we've got what, is it a four-page report? Maybe not even that much from, uh, from Barr. I read it earlier today, I'm blanking on the, the page count. How hard do they go after what we still don't know and how much should they, from a political point of view, sit back and let the process run its course? Well, they should go hard for the re release of the full report. But they have to be very careful. The Democrats, the fact that Trump didn't get nailed or hasn't been nailed yet, the Democrats risk turning this into Benghazi. You mean something that they obsess over and drag out ad infinitum while the general public kind of rolls their eyes and, and moves on? Yes. I mean, I'm amazed at the number of political people, and I include members of the press of this, but even members of Congress, who haven't understood just how narrow and how targeted the special prosecutor's brief was. Did Barr interpret the results properly? We don't know. I would say what we know, and you were right, from the four pages we've seen that Trump may be 
you know, 75% in the clear. But we don't know about the other 25%. Well, let me um, just rewind briefly before we get to, to Laura here. When you say the Democrats need to be careful so they don't turn this into another Benghazi, you said just a second later, you've been amazed at how many people didn't accurately read the narrowness of the special counsel's brief. Isn't that an argument for, I guess, continued pushing on the part of the Dems, even if there is a risk that they're perceived as obsessing over something a la Benghazi, given how narrow uh, Mueller's mandate was? I don't think so. Okay. In, in part, I was joking about MSNBC. The press, the media, our business blew out of proportion from day one what the possible effect of the Mueller report would be. You know, uh, Franklin Foyer in The Atlantic has a great piece. I'm going to read another headline. The Mueller probe was an unmitigated success, says this guy who is very anti-Trump. He goes on to say, the scandal is how much corruption is exposed and how much turns out to have been perfectly legal. You know, oh, that's an interesting take. It's a very interesting take. It's in the Atlantic. But the Democrats have to be careful when the Republicans went crazy over Bill Clinton's infidelity and his lying about oral sex. It cost them the House of Representatives and got Clinton reelected. People like Nancy Pelosi remember that. All right. Without further ado, we're joined now by Laura Colarusso. She is the digital managing editor at WGBH News, and she just published a big new piece at WGBHnews.org on the state of women in politics. It's called The Original Old Boys Club. Why is one of the most progressive states in the country lagging when it comes to electing women to political office? Laura, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Why did you decide to write this piece? Well, it was one of those things where we had a lot of data at the state level, and we, of course, know what our congressional delegation looks like. But when we went to go look to see if we could find similar numbers for local select boards and city councils, it just, the data just wasn't there. So we got curious and we started calling around and we realized that it just didn't really exist in one place. And I think it was the Secretary of State's office that said we'd have to call 351 cities and towns. And we thought, challenge accepted. Why not? We have plenty of time on our hands. Let's just do it. <laughs> so you guys spent uh, approximately one year, right, calling all these municipalities? A just a little bit less. But yes, it took the better part of a year. And what did you end up finding? We found that um, just like the other levels of governments, federal and state, that at the local level, women, they don't have parity. There's, we're about 30% at the city council level and about 26.7% at the select board level. So really, it just sort of mirrors the other levels where women don't hold nearly the same amount of seats as men. Just to backtrack a tiny bit, when you talked about how data was available for other levels of government, but not for cities and towns, was there one particular thing that made you want to look into that and made you go search for data that then you discovered was not available? Or was it more of an abstract consideration? It was somewhat abstract, but in, in the days since we published, um, I remembered that about 10 years ago, I worked for the Boston Globe. I was a, a freelancer there, and I covered four towns. And those four towns, out of the four of them, there were only two female select board members. And I just got kind of curious, well, what happened since then? And it turns out that there are the exact same number of female select board members in those four towns. So we started looking into it, and we just we went town by town. We were very organized about it. Every time we get an email back or a phone call back, we would input the data, and then that's how we kind of grew it into this one big thing that we have. 
Now, are there analogous stats from other states around the country that you can compare Massachusetts to, or are those not readily available? Not at the select board level. The comparison we made was actually at the state house level. There are a number of organizations that track that, and what we found was Massachusetts is actually 27th in the nation when it comes to how many women we have representing us on Beacon Hill. So there are 26 states that have more female representation in their state houses, including, by the way, all the other states in New England. They're all better than us when it comes to percentages of women in the state house. Why do you think that is after spending months looking into this? Is it sort of national causes that have played out a little bit differently here, or is it intensely local causes? I mean, so incumbency is everywhere, and that's a challenge everywhere. But I did talk to a couple people who said that it seems to be a little bit more prevalent in Massachusetts, especially when it comes to thinking that women or just any candidate shouldn't challenge somebody that already has a seat, right? So, I mean, I think that there are some deeply entrenched political networks here that have been here for generations, and so that's an impediment in a different way than maybe other younger states. But the other thing that we found was childcare is actually much more expensive here. It's and, terrible. Oh, yes. <laughs> as, a, as a parent myself, I feel that difficulty. But, I mean, it's so much more expensive. There are places that study this, and depending on the breakdown of the childcare you're talking about, whether you're talking about infants or toddlers, um, Massachusetts tends to top all the lists and by thousands of dollars. So when you're talking about the next most expensive states, California and New York, I mean, we're talking thousands of dollars more per year on average that Massachusetts parents have to pay. So when you think about paying for that just to go to work and then paying for more of that to run for office... That in a lot of ways is an insurmountable challenge. Yeah, yeah. It's again, I, I have been a little away from it for a while. You are not, but I remember <laughs> how arduous it was. I mean, to a point where you almost ask yourself at times, well, maybe you don't ask, why do we have kids? But you ask, <laughs> how, how can we possibly make this work? Well, you do. You ask yourself whether or not it makes sense to have both parents working, yep. right? Because in, in some cases, I don't know how personal I should get, but I mean, there were years where we probably paid out more in childcare than I made. Yeah. So it's a difficult calculation. Did you run into anyone as you were working on this piece who said to you, with all due respect, why does it matter what the percentage of women is, uh, either, you know, as selectmen, city councilors, legislators, what's what's going to change if you have 50% of women in these seats as opposed to 25 or 30%? Of course I did. I, I tried to answer that question, and I have a great quote in the piece by Lydia Edwards who talks about how people need to see themselves reflected in their elected representatives. And so, I mean, a diversity of representatives means that you have people of more backgrounds who have different ways of solving problems, who have, you know, there's just, a, I think, more of a well-roundedness in government when you have people coming from different walks of life. Sort of the case that Ayanna Presley made when she ran against and beat Mike Capuano. Exactly. So Presley's win seems to me like it could be construed as another indicator of a move in the right direction. You mentioned a few of these. You mentioned them uh, while we were chatting just here. You mentioned uh, them in the piece. Uh, the fact that there were 10 women or have been 10 women ever to hold statewide office in Massachusetts and four of them are in office right now. Currently, yes. Which is not a bad thing. Again, mm -hmm. not an indicator that we've maybe come as far as we should. I'm also thinking of the fact that right now six of the 13 Boston city councilors are women and it could potentially become a majority woman council. Am I overstating the evidence of positive change here? No, I don't think you are, but I think those are individual examples where the story really tried to look at where are we broadly? Where are we just percentage-wise? I mean, because I think those are great examples, but, you know, one of the things that really struck me was, so I didn't realize this until we really got into the reporting, but Nikki Songus, 
who was elected in 2007. She was only our fourth female congressperson, 2007. Our first senator was elected in 2012, Elizabeth Warren. Um, I think so that those are sort of counterpoints, a counterbalance to what you were just saying. Peter Kadzis, I've been boxing you out for several minutes now, but I see you wanting to get in. I didn't have anything to say or add until now, hopefully. <laughs> you know, it's always struck me that in New England, Maine was the first state with Margaret J. Smith to have a woman go to Washington. And just the second, it made me think that Massachusetts, I, I, I'm thinking out loud and feel free to well, disagree. That's what we do but, here. Um, <laughs> I think Massachusetts is socially more hierarchical and more socially rigid than the rest of New England. I mean, Maine and New Hampshire in particular, you know, have had a reasonable tradition of, well, whether it's reasonable or not, a heck of a lot better than what our tradition is. Am I crazy or could there be something to that? Potentially. We didn't study the other states quite as much. Yeah. But, I mean, one thing we did find when we when we compared the state legislatures was, I mean, Massachusetts does fall below Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, all of them when it comes to female representation. So Vermont, which just never sent a woman to Congress, also has the most diverse state legislature, though. So, I mean, it's like it really is a mixed bag here and there. And there's all these examples you could pull out to kind of prove yeah. the concept one way or the other. But I think when you sit down and you look at these, like I said, broad percentages, women just haven't been able to break really the 30 percent mark in Massachusetts. Yeah, I mean, well, the federal delegation is a little bit different with Ayanna Presley. They're now above 30 percent. But there does seem to be a, a barrier at that point. Now, we might be at a point in time where that's changing. I think there's enough of a groundswell of of interest for pushing female candidacies forward. You talked in the piece about how there is a, there's a shift underway now, which is maybe analogous to the shift that occurred after the Anita Hill hearings, right. after the Clarence Thomas hearings at which Anita Hill played a, a starring role. And my recollection is that you make an argument that the shift that's underway now in terms of increased representation by females, <laughs> increased representation by women, is likely to be more abiding than that one was. Can you just recap the argument? Sure. So I think part of what we're seeing is this growth of very local, very grassroots networks, women and men, um, but mostly women in towns that are trying to push female representation and, and, and more representation by people of color within their town. So I wrote about uh, the Winchester Inclusive, which this was a group of people the day after the election or a couple days after the election, they got together and they were sort of despondent about what had happened in 2016. And they decided that how they were going to do this, how they were going to fight back was to really push for more diversity at the local level. And that's something we saw in Nantucket as well. There's this organization called We Can. Um, they are there to help encourage women and give them workshops so they can learn what does it mean to run for office? What do I need to do? What are some of the barriers? There are more and more of these little grassroots organizations popping up. And I think that, that it's, it's kind of too soon to tell, but they seem to be sustaining themselves. And this is stuff really driven by the Donald Trump presidency, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the Women's March, I think, is going to be recognized in history as a flashpoint, far more than Anita Hill. I thought that would have been more of a flashpoint, and it, it was briefly. But the Women's March, I just look at my own family, and as you both know, as some of our listeners know, I, I come from a big extended family. And whether it was my own wife or my sisters or my nieces, 
I was amazed at the number of family members who went to the Women's March. I'm not amazed. I know to this day the number of women who just say that they've been radically changed by Donald Trump's presidency. What's interesting, though, that's an ideological thing around here or coastally. There are huge numbers of very conservative women. You know, many, many women voted for Donald Trump. So around here... He didn't win women, as he likes to say, but he did win white women. He did win white women. Here in, in the Northeast, we talk about women in politics, and we tend to think of liberal women, progressive women, moderate women. Nationally, it's sort of a conservative thing. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you actually make a really good point, Peter, because... Time and time again, as I was researching the story, we're talking to people. I tried to talk to both Democrats and Republicans. I mean, there's concern that there aren't as many women on the Republican side anymore. And what happened was even as, you know, activists say that women made gains, there was a lot of progress made, that a lot of those Democratic women that were elected took out Republican women. And so there's concern that one party is going to kind of own the female wave, if you will. Well, maybe that's a consequence of a presidency that comports itself in a testosterone-rich manner, right? Potentially. Uh, One other thing I wanted to say to what Peter's point was is just that it just seemed like progress was made in 2018 if if you believe more women should be in government, but the gains were kind of limited, right? I mean, there was the Massachusetts State House ticked up from about 25% female to 28.5%. The Congress actually, for as historic as those numbers are, really the representation only ticked up, I think, 17 female members. The question that I had, and I tried to put to certain people, and we kind of ran out of time and, and space to put it in the article, is how do you sustain something like that? Is there enough energy to sustain it? And I think one of the really interesting things is when you look at organizations like We Can and Winchester Inclusive, Emerge Massachusetts, there are a bunch of them now that kind of are coming together to really help female candidates. I think that's the energy that people want to see when they talk about whether or not there will be a sustained movement for more women being elected. I've long had a pet theory that one reason women in Massachusetts aren't more active in statehouse politics, running for state rep, I don't mean for statewide office, is because for the most part, it's a waste of time. The Speaker controls the House, and there are literally about 10 members who set the agenda, who keep the House running. The the rest are just go-alongs. I mean, that's a fact of life. And I don't know, maybe it makes me sound old-fashioned, but I often think women are more practical and smarter than men in some regards. And they take a look at the House and say, hmm, by the way, as opposed to the Senate, which has had two women as Mm-hmm. president of the Senate. One of the interesting things that came out of the reporting was that there were a lot of women that were running for the state house, that were running for select board, who drew a straight line from their candidacies to what's happening in Washington, D.C., right? And so they see now, or they think now, that holding these positions, whether it's at the state house or on their select board or the planning board or whatever, that whatever's happening in Washington, the, the issues that aren't getting fixed, they feel a responsibility to, to work on that at their level, at the, whether it's local or at the state house. I mean, I, I talked to Trom Wynn, who beat Jim Lyons, and she has a great quote in the story where she talks about how, is Massachusetts progressive? Yes, of course. Could we be better? Absolutely. Like, there are a lot of things that we still have to fix and protect if we're going to, you know, stand up to what's happening in Washington. I know this wasn't your focus, but you were doing this reporting um, on the heels of a presidential election in which the woman who a lot of people thought would become the first female president 
was beaten uh, by a man. And heading into another election where that man is going to be seeking re-election, there's a huge field of Democrats looking to take him on. And polling has consistently shown men, including men who aren't even officially in the race, like Joe Biden, way ahead of the pack, whereas people like, say, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, who a lot of people are impressed by, um, languish in the you know single digits. Did people talk about the White House as you were doing this reporting, even just in passing? And if so, what kind of stuff did they say? A little bit. I mean, I think it's early, right? And that's why the polling might not be all that important yet. But very true. Uh, people are very focused right now on the races that are immediately in front of them. And yes, I think a lot of this is in reaction to the 2016 election. I think a lot of people are gearing up for 2020. But that wasn't on people's minds so much as I, I think a lot of this is still a little bit looking backwards. And once we really round the corner into the primaries, I think that'll become a bigger issue for a lot of the folks that I was talking to. But right now, they're really focused on the local races that they're running. <laughs> In the course of your reporting, I'm wondering if you heard an anecdote that stands out to you for whatever reason that maybe you weren't able to put in the piece because it would involve a you know a blind quote or something, but that you'd be comfortable sharing in this context, whether it's something uplifting that a certain person you spoke with experienced or something kind of heinous that they experienced in the course of trying to navigate their way in politics. I don't have a specific anecdote like that, but I can tell you that Almost everybody I interviewed that ran for office, whether it was you know, like 14 years ago with Kim Driscoll, the mayor of Salem, or Trump Wynn, who just was recently elected last year, or um, even the women running for select board in Nantucket now, everybody has been asked, well, what does your husband think? How will you raise your children? Those questions have not gone away. Um, and I, thought, I found that really interesting. I find that, and obviously I'm saying Do you this have is a children? guy, kind yes. of mind-boggling yeah. in 2019. Were you stunned? to hear this or not? A little bit. I mean, I think the first couple times, yes, but after a while it became such a pattern that, uh, oh, yeah, okay, I'm going to check this box off. Yep, they were asked, are you tough enough to, to do this job? Peter, you want to get a last word in here? Well, yeah, I have a speculative question that really isn't based on your reporting, but, you know, social media, as our online editor, social media is really in your realm. I wonder if the success that women around here have had lately corresponds somewhat to the rise of social media as politically important. And the reason I say that is I I think many women are better communicators uh, or are strong communicators and that social media can magnify their message and their voice. Is there anything to that, do you think? Um, I'd like to kind of answer that, like the flip side of that question, because I think when we were talking before, Peter, about how Massachusetts is an extremely expensive media market, I think social media allows for more of those voices to get through, right? And so it might not be that they're better at communicating that way, but they have more of a platform. I mean, when you think about Ayanna Presley's campaign and the Facebook advertising that she did, that was, it was well-targeted and it was very uplifting, right? I mean, she used the, she used that platform in a way that uh, I think... You know, I, I, would, I won't say that Mike Capuana didn't have a chance, but it was a really great use of social media. Oh, she killed him on social media. It's an equalizing medium. Okay. With that, it is time to wrap up this episode of The Scrum. Laura Colarusso, Digital Managing Editor at WGBH News, thanks for coming downstairs. Thanks for having me. 
Laura's piece, again, is the original old boys club. Why is one of the most progressive states in the country lagging when it comes to electing women to political office? You can read it in its entirety at WGBHnews.org. There's also an accompanying video featuring former state rep Doris Bunty, former Lieutenant Governor Evelyn Murphy, former Lieutenant Governor Carrie Healy, and former Lieutenant Governor and Acting Governor Jane Swift. As always, Peter Kadzis and I would love to hear from you. You can reach us by email at scrum at WGBH.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. He is at Kadzis. Our engineer for this episode was John Parker, and we got production help from Gary Mott. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Thank you.